we are working our way slowly but surely through Genesis. Uh, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit um, for a while, and then we'll slow down again. But one thing we've been doing, if, if you're new to Revelation Church, is we've been interacting with this text together as we work through it. And the way we've been doing that is we've been doing what's called a Q&R. And so I'm going to talk for a little bit, uh, and you might have questions. I, I am often bad at communicating. And so if you think, wow, I don't understand that, let's clarify that. Or if you have questions about something else in Scripture that, that God brought to your mind, um, you can text your questions anonymously to this number, and at the end of the message today, we'll, we'll interact with them a little bit. Recognize, too, that we've been getting some texts kind of late. They, you know, they go up into space, and then they come back down to this phone. Um, so send them in early if you think of them, and they'll just, they'll just sit here till we're ready for them. Last week... We talked about days one through three of creation, and I said that God set up three different realms. He set up this, the, the realm of, of the skies, the realm of the waters, and the realm of the land. And today, we're going to look at days four through six, where God is going to fill those realms with inhabitants. So, if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you in the pew. We're going to take a look at verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And they will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. And there will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. So we're not going to hit every single detail in here. There's a lot we could unpack, but I want to hit some highlights of each day. And what I want to talk about for day four is this idea of these lights in the expanse and how this story is different from the stories of the peoples surrounding Israel. We've talked about this a lot in our study of Genesis. Genesis isn't the only creation story out there. Babylon has several, Egypt has some, the Canaanites, they, they have a tale of how the world began. And often, almost always in these accounts, the stars, the heavenly bodies, they're gods, they're divine. We worship them. They are, they are the things that uh, control our destinies. They're the things the sun creates, the warmth that creates our crops. And so these are deities to be worshiped. But that's not how Genesis talks about these things. In fact, it's interesting that Moses doesn't use the Hebrew word for sun or the Hebrew word for moon because both of those words were actual names of false gods that they would have interacted with. And so he, it's almost as if he, he's, he's just kind of saying, like, you know, these aren't divine. These aren't worth your worship. They're under the authority of Yahweh, the true God. 
And these things, they have a purpose, right? We've talked about like through the creation account, God is giving things purpose. And the purpose is, is, is uh, fourfold. First of all, they're for signs. The CSB, which we re- read and we usually read, says signs for seasons, but there should really be a comma after signs. Signs is the first thing that the stars are for. The heavenly bodies, they communicate with us. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. So the psalmist in Psalm 19 says, the stars are telling us something about God. And I I have to imagine you've experienced something like this. If you've gotten away from the city at night and there's just so many stars and you can see the Milky Way galaxy and you feel so small, God feels so big. The stars communicate to us. But then sometimes the stars communicate to us differently. Listen to this verse in Matthew. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. These, these magi, these, these sorcerers from Babylon say, we saw a star and the star told us that there was a king that was going to be born in Judea. I don't really know how that works. They seem to. They were right. So stars are for signs. Stars are also for seasons. And don't think summer and winter. Think, think festivals and celebrations. The Jewish people would have celebrated Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. And all of these things are governed by the position of the stars and the moon. When we do this is based on where these celestial bodies are at. They're also for days and years. We talked about in day one, God created time. God created this idea that our lives are a series of moments. And in day four, God gives us some tools for keeping track of those moments, the days and the years, the calendar. The heavenly bodies are the timekeepers that God sets up on day four. And I love this because throughout the creation narrative, we're going to see it a lot next week when we start talking about people. God is a delegator. You you, you realize this? Like everything that there is that needs to be done, he can do it himself. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is the best at everything. And yet he goes, you know what? You guys take care of that. He does that with us. Like, can you imagine as the church, we have this calling. We're told to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel to everyone, to tell everyone the good news about Jesus, that he's died for our sins and risen from the dead to restore the world back to the way God originally intended it. Go tell everybody. And you just think like, really? Is that the best plan? I know myself well enough to know that that is not the best idea. And yet God says, I want you to do it anyway. God is a delegator. But before we get off of the stars, I want to take a look at verse 16. It says, God made 
the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as the stars. This idea of ruling, this is something that, that persons do, that beings do. You, objects don't rule. So it's, a, it's kind of a weird word to use. And we just got done talking about how Moses is de-emphasizing these objects. These are not deities. These are not gods that should be worshiped. But as we read through the Hebrew scriptures, we continue to see that the stars are often given personalities. In Job 5, it says the stars fought from the heavens. The stars fought with Sisera from their paths. In Job 38, we read, what supports its, the earth's foundations or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Isaiah 14 says, you said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. That's a, um, a passage that we often tie to the fall of Satan. So all throughout the scriptures, we see stars kind of given this like personality. Now, what, do we, what should we do with this imagery? It's hard to tell if ancient Israel believed the stars were actual beings. A lot of their neighbors did. Like I said, a lot of them believed they were gods. But they definitely believed that the stars were symbols for some sort of supernatural being. And we see this even in the story of the wise men. Jesus has a star. And the wise men go, his star has risen in the east, and we came to Jerusalem to find him. There's, in their mind, this great king, this ruler, has a star that is a symbol for him. And I think that's really fascinating, because no matter the specifics, we live in a very different world than they did. The Bible teaches us that the physical world and the spiritual world are incredibly connected. In some ways, ancient people were more in tune with the reality of the world than we are. We talked last week about the idea of a flat earth and a, a, a domed sky and how that seemed to be how everybody kind of understood the world. And we can, be, we can stand on our high perch from 2021 and go, aren't those ancient people dumb? But the Bible teaches us about a kaleidoscope of deeper realities that we dismiss because we're so good at science. And this, this quote from Nikita Khrushchev, he said, Gagarin, uh, uh, the first cosmonaut, flew into space but didn't see any God there. And as Christians, we would say, well, that's silly. That's not how it works. But for the atheist Khrushchev, he's, he's holding on to this physical reality of like, well, we went up there and God's not there, so there's no such thing as God. I did some digging this week into this like controversial field of weighing people when they die to see if you can measure the weight of their souls leaving their body. It's pretty weird. But if souls are immaterial objects, they probably can't be measured materially anyway. And we, we get tied up in this idea that science is this pinnacle of knowledge and, and we have to understand everything that way. In the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the, the team on the ship gets to an island and they meet this man named Ramandu, 
who calls himself a retired star. And Eustace says, in our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. And Ramandu says, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. And I love the mystery in that idea that, that, yeah, stars are these things out in space. They're fusion factories full of hydrogen and helium. But what if something else is going on that we can't detect with our telescopes? So look up at the stars tonight and just wonder if there are spiritual beings behind everyone. But don't worship them. Moving on, day five. Then God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind and God saw that it was good. God bless them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. Okay, one thing I want to key in on on day five, it's in uh, verse 21. So God created the large sea creatures. So you might think, well, that's like whales and sharks and that really big squid but the, the Hebrew word there is, is the word uh, tannin. And in other places in the Bible, it's translated sea monsters. And there's a, a, pretty, um, a, a, a pretty major understanding in the ancient Near East that sea monsters, they live in the ocean and they're up to no good. And we've talked a lot about the ocean. We talked about when, when, at the very beginning, when God moved over the formless earth and the, the chaotic waters were in existence, that that's the kind of a primordial chaos that everything springs out of, that the, that the danger of the sea, that the, the disorder, that the, um, just the natural entropy is something that God is working against in creation. He's creating order. He's creating life where there is disorder. And to the ancient uh, Israelite, in that ancient sea, there lived ancient sea monsters. And the sea monsters were these personalized representations of this chaos and this disorder and this, um, this force that was just trying to undo everything that's good about the world. And this makes its way into Scripture. In Isaiah 27, we read, On that day, the Lord, with his relentless, large, strong sword, will bring judgment on Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will slay the monster that is in the sea. So Leviathan, the sea monster, is this obviously negative thing that God is going to conquer. Psalm 74, the psalmist writes, you divided the sea with your strength. You smashed the heads of the sea monsters in the water and you crushed the heads of Leviathan. You fed him to the creatures of the desert. This is a creation psalm. The psalmist is talking about creation, but he's, he's telling a different story than Genesis. 
because in Genesis, we don't see this battle. What he's doing is he's pulling on another story that everybody in his world would have known from a city called Ugarit, a group of Canaanites had a story about the god Baal. If you've read the Old Testament, Baal is a false god that the Israelites are constantly um, going astray and worshiping. And the Canaanites have this story about Baal conquering the sea and conquering the monsters in the sea to set up the world. And I've got a little chart here. Let me show that. Yeah, there we go. So in English, we have the words sea and sea monster and Leviathan. In Hebrew, the words are yam, tananim, and Yuatan, I think, I don't know. Uh, and then in Ugarit, this Canaanite language that's very similar to Hebrew, the words are Yam, Tanun, and Lutanu. And those are all the names of gods that Baal destroys. And so what the psalmist is doing in Psalm 74 is he's repurposing that story and saying, no, Baal isn't the one that destroyed the chaos monsters. Yahweh is the one that destroys the chaos monsters. He's using the, the Canaanite creation myth, myth against them to show that Yahweh is the true king. But Genesis... Genesis is taking a different approach. Genesis is pulling on the same word, this, this sea monster, but he's not, he's not using the, the Canaanite myth to talk about a battle. He just goes, you know that, that fearsome chaos monster that ruins everyone's lives? It's not a big deal. God made that. God put that in the ocean. It does what God wants. Yahweh is bigger and more powerful than all the things that you are afraid of. And while we might not visualize a sea dragon at the source of all of the bad things that happen in our world, we still need to hear that, that God is bigger than all of the things that we are afraid of. All of the things that have power to bring chaos and disorder and destruction in our lives. Our God is higher and greater and better than those things. Day six. A lot happens on day six. We're not going to get all the way through it. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Day six isn't over. The very next verse, we see that God is going to create man and woman, humanity. That's a big one. We're going to deal with that next week by itself. But what I want to talk about in regards to day six is something that I've gotten a lot of questions about. Because we've, we've said from the very beginning that Moses and the ancient Israelites are asking different questions about the world than we are. We are asking questions about the Big Bang and about evolution and how old the earth is and how fast the speed of light is and all these things about the beginning of the world. The Israelites just aren't asking those questions. Their, their understanding of creation is a functional creation. They want to know, what is all this stuff for? And we see day after day after day, Moses writes down what God makes this stuff for. 
He doesn't really talk about how God makes it. He doesn't, he doesn't really say what the process was, but we're a different people in a different time and we want to know what the process was, right? So day four doesn't really help, or day six doesn't really help us. God said, let the earth produce living creatures. What does that mean? Sometimes I visualize that as just kind of like a weird kind of Gumby animation of like antelope and hippopotamuses and giraffes kind of coming up out of the ground. I don't know. But see, Moses really isn't interested in that. He just kind of goes past it and moves on. He doesn't tell us how old the universe is, or he doesn't tell us if evolution is a thing that we should accept as true, or, or if the earth is only 6,000 years old, or if it's four and a half billion years old, or any of those things. But because those are our questions, I want to take a little bit of time to work through them. And the first thing I want to talk about is some history. Over the course of the last 2,000 years, the church has held a variety of understandings about these kind of questions, how old the earth is and how creation happened. St. Augustine, who is a kind of pillar in the church uh, in the early part of its existence, he believed that the six days of creation were not literal because why on the earth would it take God six days to create? God obviously can do creation instantly. And so the six days are just a literary device so that we could go, wow, that's a really pretty story. And that's kind of the opposite perspective that many of us have now. We, we think like, well, six days is much, is not long enough for God to have created. In the pre-modern world up to about the 1700s, most of the scientists were pastors, because, you know, pastors only work one day a week, so they've got a lot of free time to do science. Um, that was a joke. Most people just accepted that the earth was young, because you can count the genealogies in Genesis and do some math, and they had no other reason to believe otherwise. But starting in the 1800s, the scientists who were getting better at science, if you know anything about the scientific method, um, mostly, you know, Christian pastors still, started digging in the ground and finding fossils and rock layers and asking questions that they hadn't asked before. And they, they started to think, well, maybe, maybe this place is older than we thought it was. And most Christians began to believe that the earth was old, except the Seventh-day Adventists. In the Seventh-day Adventist church, their founder, E.G. White, had had a, very, a series of very profound, detailed visions about the beginning of the world. And in order to hold her visions as divinely inspired, they had to maintain that the earth was very young. And so they were kind of this holdout in the late 19th century. And so along comes the 20th century. And in the beginning of the 20th century, there's something called the fundamentalist modernist controversy, where there's this group of Christians that are like, you know, we're really smart, intellectual people now, and we realize that miracles don't happen. So we have to decide that, you know, it's good to be a Christian because it makes us feel good inside, but Jesus, there's no such thing as the virgin birth, and there's no such thing as Noah's Ark, and Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. And, and they started caving on all of these uh, supernatural ideas in the Bible. Well, the fundamentalist is the other side of this 
argument come along and say, no, 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 the Bible is authoritative and God is at work in the world and we believe that God can do whatever he wants and so these supernatural events, they are real. So there's this big schism in the church that has all kinds of effects that we're not going to talk about this morning. But two of these fundamentalists, one of them, his name was William Jennings Bryan. If you know anything about the Scopes Monkey Trial uh, in 1925, the, the film is called Inherit the Wind, I think. Um, he is the prosecuting attorney in that uh, film, in that trial. And he is a fundamentalist. He, was a, he, he ran for president uh, for the Democratic Party many times. He never won. Uh, and he was a crusader against Darwinism. Darwin's theory of evolution came about in the mid-1800s, and he said, that absolutely cannot be true. We cannot believe in evolution because it goes against the Word of God. But then he also said, if you believe the earth is young, you might as well believe the earth is flat. He held to an old earth, but he rejected Darwinism. He thought to believe in a young earth meant that you were ignorant of the facts. James Orr, who was another fundamentalist, he wrote a paper in one of the fundamentalist papers. It was this kind of manifesto that was written by the fundamentalists called Science and the Christian Faith. He was a theistic evolutionist. He believed that God was responsible for all of the evolutionary processes over millions of years that created the world we see today. So in about 1900, the only major Christian groups in the United States that believed in a young earth were the Seventh-day Adventists uh, and the Missouri Synod Lutherans, because they had some teachers in their, in their uh, denomination that held to that, and it spread throughout Lutheranism. So there's this Seventh-day Adventist um, book salesman. He goes door-to-door -door selling se Seventh-day Adventist books named uh, George McCready Price who starts to dig into the field of geology. He's an amateur geologist. And he gets excited about this young earth, uh, what's called flood geology, where, where you kind of interpret everything we see scientifically based on a 6,000-year-old earth and a global flood. And he started writing books. He developed something called the Deluge Geology Society in 1938. And he caught the attention of a Baptist civil engineer named Henry Morris. And if you've ever uh, gone to, if you've gone to Bible college or if you've ever studied young earth creationism, Henry Morris is the guy for young earth creationism. In 1961, he published a book called The Genesis Flood where he laid out the scientific processes that he thought were responsible for our earth today based on a 6,000-year-old earth and Noah's flood. And in the 1960s, I wasn't there, but I heard that it was a period of social upheaval, that there's a lot going on in the 1960s that Christians are not okay with. And the Young Earth Creationism movement comes into this place and starts saying, you know what the problem with the world is? All of this abortion and crime and pornography and all of these things, it's because people believe in evolution. And if you reject our understanding of the Young Earth six-day creation, you are rejecting the authority 
of the Bible. And this is what's wrong with the world. And so, these different kind of expressions of how to understand Genesis have kind of coexisted with each other ever since. And what this is, is it's an argument between agents and methods. And, and here's what I mean by that. I, um, I do a lot of work on my house. I, we're, we're just finishing up building a fence and we're installing a countertop. And just, I, I just like that sort of thing. My dentist, he knows that I do this sort of thing. And, and I saw him at a restaurant the other day and he said, oh, hey, we're finally doing that renovation on our house. I said, oh, that's awesome. And he goes, I mean, I'm not doing it. I'm paying someone to do it, which is probably the better method, honestly. <laughs> but see, he can still say he's doing a renovation on his house because he is the agent responsible for that renovation. His methods might be different than mine. When I say I'm doing a renovation, I'm getting out a nail gun and a tape measure. When he's doing a renovation, he's getting out a checkbook. But we're both agents there. It's just our methods are different. And so when we look at God's creation, Genesis is clear that God is the agent. And all of us Christians, we, we fight about what the methods are. And so I want to quickly go through four rooms that Christians live in regarding the methods. And I've got a view, and I've also got an organization that re represents that view. So first, Young Earth Creationism, which we talked about Henry Morris. The biggest organization representing Young Earth Creationism today is called Answers in Genesis. A man named Ken Ham runs it. They have a big museum. Uh, I think it's in Kentucky. They have a full-size replica of Noah's Ark. And they would say that Genesis presents a modern scientific account of the creation of the cosmos in six days, about 6,000 years ago. And much of what we see in the world today can be accounted for by the effects of Noah's flood. God is the agent, and a 21st century modern reading of Genesis shows us the methods. And so they would, they would look at the creation story and look and see that light is created on day one and the sun is created on day four. And they would say, well, there is some other light source on day one that has to exist that is replaced by the sun on day four. The old earth creationist, uh, represented often by an organization called Reasons to Believe, you can look up their website at some point if you'd like says that Genesis presents a somewhat metaphorical but still scientific type account of the creation of the cosmos, and it aligns with the findings of science that seem to show that the universe and the earth is very old. God is the agent still, and we need to read the text metaphorically to match it up with the methods that we have discovered through science. So the, the same question with the, the sun and the light the old earth creationists would say, well, the sun was always there from day one because it creates the light. But we know from, from science that the earth's atmosphere was cloudy and opaque for millions of years. So you couldn't see the sun until at some point in the distant past, that atmosphere cleared up and the sun was visible. 
And that's how they would explain Genesis. The theistic evolutionists, this third group, uh, represented online by the Biologos Foundation, says that Genesis isn't really concerned about science at all. We should accept all modern evolutionary models that science gives us. All we really need to hold on to biblically is to say that God is the agent of creation. Genesis isn't talking about scientific questions. And whatever science shows us about how creation came to be, well, those are the methods that God used. And then this fourth room, which is a little bit different, uh, is the intelligent design community. Uh, This is represented uh, often by the Discovery Institute in Seattle. And proponents of intelligent design would say modern scientific research can use the scientific method to show that the world we have today could not have come into existence by natural processes alone and requires the input of an intelligent being from outside the system. And typically, they don't really take a position on Genesis because of that. So those are, like, those are kind of the four boxes that we find. And these are all boxes filled with Christians. There's, there's nobody in, I mean, there's a lot of non-Christians that believe a lot of things as well, but Christians hold to all four of these views. People that love Jesus and follow the Lord, our, our brothers and sisters in our family. So what do I think? First of all, I have a Bible degree, so what I think about science is really immaterial. But I have opinions. I grew up being taught young earth creationism. I I was homeschooled, and and, and young earth creationism got a real foothold in the homeschool world, and uh, I learned a lot about young earth creationism. One thing I find really valuable about young earth creationism is their insistence that we cannot know what happened in the past only by looking at the present. Young earth creationists believe in something called catastrophism, primarily Noah's flood, but other things in the past that screwed up how we would understand what happened. A good example of this is the Colorado River. You look at the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon, and some would say that, well, Every year, the Colorado River erodes this much silt from the Grand Canyon. And so if you just add that all back up, it must have taken this many million years to erode the Colorado River. But young earth creationists would say, well, actually, what if something else happened? What if a thousand years ago, there was a giant flood and the erosion was way faster or way slower? We just don't know, based on what's happening now, what happened in the past. I I love that perspective. I think it's probably wise. But as I've said already, I don't think Moses is asking the same questions we're asking. And so when young earth creationists try to fit a scientific worldview into a pre-scientific piece of literature, I'm not convinced that it makes sense. Old earth creationists point out that we have really strong data that shows that Light has traveled for millions of years from distant stars. That ice pack in the Arctic has really accumulated for hundreds of thousands of years. And they'll point out in the text why it doesn't require a young reading. I think those are all valuable thoughts. But they're still trying to fit a modern scientific explanation into this text. 
Theistic evolutionists, they usually have a pretty good grasp on this idea that Genesis 1 isn't talking about science because they, they can't have it talking about science. They would say that the Bible doesn't talk about the methods of how the earth came to be, so we're free to accept modern science as it is. But the problem I have with that is that if you haven't noticed, modern science is constantly changing. Every year, it seems like this thing that we believed has been reversed, and now we believe this thing. And if you look back farther on the time scale, we believe things 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 400 years ago that we reject now. I'm skeptical of how reliable science always is. The intelligent design crowd has been really helpful to me over the years because they are an example of this idea that science is changing. These are, these are professionals in their field. These are not pastors. These are PhD physicists and geneticists and chemists. And they look at the data that they study and they go, all of these naturalistic ideas that Darwinian evolution says is responsible for the things that exist, it just doesn't work. And they use the scientific method to show evidence for design in the system. Scientists like Michael Behe and Stephen Meyer at the Discovery Institute have brought real doubts about Darwinian evolution into the mainstream, even though they're kind of the minority. They're saying, you know what, there, there might be some evolutionary processes, there might be some natural selection, but at the base of it, we can't get from nothing to where we are all by ourselves. Nature just cannot do it. And I find that very helpful in wrestling with my doubts about evolutionary science. So all that to say, I'm not really sure. I think, I think Moses is trying to tell us some powerful things about the way the world works. I'm not sure he's trying to tell us how the world works. I think there's a lot of really good, honest men and women doing scientific work that's worth taking at face value. But I also think men and women are broken and sinners, and sometimes science is wrong. Sometimes it's wrong on accident. Sometimes it's wrong on purpose. One of the things about the scientific method today is they're committed to what's called um, methodological naturalism, which says that no matter what we find, we have to find a natural explanation for it. No matter what comes to be, we can't just say, well, God did it. And I kind of understand that in one sense. But with some of the proponents of intelligent design, they're saying, no, you actually can see that there is data showing that there is no way to get to this organism or this process or this protein sequence without adding information from the outside. And nature doesn't work that way. Which I think brings us back to what I think Genesis is screaming at us, which is God is the agent of creation. And so as we wrap up, I've got two points of application I want to make. And the first one is that we need to guard ourselves from unnecessary gatekeeping. 
I was watching a debate between a young earth creationist and an old earth creationist this week and w- on YouTube, and one of the commenters on YouTube wrote, when I realized I believed the world was old, I thought I couldn't be a Christian anymore. You guys, that's awful. That's heartbreaking. For somebody to bump up against what they think science is telling them and go like, I guess I have to abandon my faith. We shouldn't be posturing ourselves that way. Unfortunately, that's something that the young earth creationist community tends to do. They tend to be pretty proud about the idea that if you don't believe what we believe, you're at the very least wrong and you might not even be a Christian. And we can't be doing that. The age of the earth, the theory of evolution, these are not primary tenets of the Christian faith. The gospel is the message that Jesus is king and he has come to set the creation free from its bondage to sin and death. That's what matters the most. And the second point of application is this. There's there's a, a term called evolutionism. There's a quote from John Walton. The diabolical nature of evolutionism is not to be found first and foremost in its claims that things came into existence in a randomly generated sequence through mutation and natural selection, but rather in the insidious way that it strips the cosmos and everything in it of purpose. So here's what Walton is saying. And Walton, Walton is a member of the advisory council of BioLogo. So he is a theistic evolutionist. He believes that everything we know from a modern scientific perspective about evolution is trustworthy and true. He's also an Old Testament scholar. But he says, the insidious thing about evolutionism, this philosophy of life that everything is random, doesn't conflict with the Bible in the methods that God uses. It conflicts with the Bible in saying that God didn't do it. There is no purpose. None of this matters. The idea that the world has no purpose is a lie and an attempt to use science to show that it is purposeless is a work of the enemy. The world was not an accident. You are not an accident. The message of Genesis is that God has a plan for this planet. And that includes you. God has, the Bible says, knit you together from before you were born. God knows everything that there is to know about you. He is responsible for your life. And even if you feel like the scientific evidence for evolution is convincing, you cannot take God out of that process. And unfortunately, many people do. And you, you find people walking away from faith because they believe that the data tells them that life is meaningless, that all of this is an accident. And that is absolutely untrue. There is nothing random about your life. No matter what methods God used to bring you to where you are today, either through long biological processes, or just how he's weaved the story of your life together. He has a purpose for your life. And questions of origins and debates about science, they might be interesting, they might be important, 
they're secondary to the fact that Jesus Christ is king, that he came to earth to live the perfect life that you cannot live, that he died on the cross in your place for your sins to give you new life and to recreate you as part of his new creation. That's the gospel. That's the center of our faith. All right, we're going to stop there. We have a few minutes if anybody has any questions. We have way more information now than in generations past. And there are, because of that, there are a lot of divergent views that, that, lend, that leads us to just kind of maybe retreat and say, well, whatever you believe is fine. We don't want to get into it. We don't want to argue. I think you're right. I think, I think there's, I think one of the problems that we have is that we have way too much information. I mean, we've talked about this before, but I don't think we're built to absorb everything that we are um, given access to s- through social media specifically. Um, there's a, there's a C.S. Lewis quote that I'm going to butcher, but basically he's writing a paper on on these sort of topics, and he says, he talks about the Middle Ages and how there there are these, um, I think he calls them um, milkmaids and alewives in the Middle Ages that um, didn't believe certain things about the cosmos, not because they were foolish or not because they were ignorant, it's just because they had other stuff to do. And, and I think for a long portion of history, the vast majority of people just kind of lived their lives and lived in their communities and gathered together and broke bread and got married and had children and, and celebrated family. And the idea that you would spend long periods of time thinking about whatever questions is, is not something that people had the the privilege of time for. And so I think we live in a civilization to where we have been given so much more free time. And that's the rise of this, the scientific, um, the age of discovery, right? Like, or in, not the age of discovery, the scientific revolution or whatever they call that, is that all of a sudden you've got all these people that have this free time and that they can devote to like test tubes and beakers and digging in the dirt and stuff. And so in one sense, I think, that's a, I think it's a good thing. I think, I think learning and growing is a good thing. But I also think we, we live in a climate without, um, without trust for authority. And I think when, when we don't trust authority, then we kind of throw up our hands and go like, oh, I, don't, I just don't know what to believe. Um, if we were... If we were in a community where we had a very strong authority structure where whoever the guy was, whoever the body of people were, they say that this is true and so we just believe it, uh, it would be a lot easier. But we've, we've been trained to mistrust everything, some, sometimes for good reason because people lie to us, online especially. And so combining this idea of mistrust for authority with all of this extra information kind of creates this environment that you're talking about. 
I think in some cases it can be really problematic. Um, you know, I think if you say, well, you know, some people believe that Jesus is the Son of God and some people believe he never existed, so I guess we can't know anything. It's, it's true. Like, well, I think we can. I, I think we can maybe do a little work and get to a place where we are confident that Jesus, at the very least, is a real person. And then maybe it's a step of faith, but a reasonable step of faith to say he's the Son of God. When we talk about things that are... Um, like in this, this category of like scientific data, like I don't, I don't have a PhD in, you know, paleontology. I don't know. So, so when I have two people who are both experts in their field telling me the data says two different things, I just have to either trust one over the other or like you said, just kind of back away and say like, I don't know. I think where it, I think where it's okay though, is when we can be clear on the things that are not central to the community of faith. So we're talking, I mean, society at large is one thing, but we're talking about the family of God. Like we're Christians in this room, most of us, I don't know everybody, but most of us are Christians. And we would say that we are family, we are brothers and sisters. Our big brother is Jesus, God is our father. And so there are some things that are paramount for being part of that family that we, we agree on. There's, there's things that, it, that you need to agree about to be a member of God's family. And then there's other things that I would say we are free to disagree on. And for many people, I mean, some of you are like, I can't believe this is still going on talking about science. You're not, you're not into this kind of thing. Then you can just kind of go like, I don't care. Other people are going to be fascinated by this kind of discussion and they're going to dig and they're going to come to a place where like, you know, you watch eight hours of debates during the week to figure out what you think about something. And if that's who you are, that's okay. But I still think you need to hold to the, the idea that this part of what you're thinking is not make it or break it for admittance into the family of God. Because um, I think for our purposes, that's paramount. When you, when you get into a place to where like, yeah, maybe... Maybe Genesis is just not true. God isn't real. God, it's all random. Well, that, that's kind of disqualifying if you're going to call yourself a Christian. We're going to get to um, Adam and Eve in a, in a number of weeks, and, and there's some things that get tricky about Adam and Eve that I think, like, well, I think you have to stand on this. I think you have to say some things about who Adam and Eve were. And there are, there are Christians in our world today that are um, moving those goalposts a little bit, and I think that's problematic. I think that... And I'll, I'll finish with this. I think the biggest challenge that I have for that situation, and I speak to myself as well as everyone, is that we don't like to work to learn. Most of us were like, you know, we threw our, ca our, our hat in the, in the air and flipped our tassel over and we were done with school and like, I'm not doing that anymore. But if we're going to be well informed about anything and it, it's, it's, faith and science and politics and medicine and all of the things that we wrestle with, we have to be willing to put in the work for it. And what I find is that most of us aren't. And that's not necessarily bad because most of us are really busy living life and raising children and, and going to the beach and having a good time and worshiping Jesus and all of the things that are really important. But 
I think if you, if, if, if you have a thirst to go like, I want to know what I believe about this, you got to be willing to like deep dive into it. And I think if you're not, you need to make sure that you're holding your opinions loosely uh, because they're bound, they're bound to change if you don't have them tied down very tightly. So I don't know if that helps. That's what I, just comes to my mind. Okay, that's a good question. We're going to take communion. Speaking of things that matter, we take communion every week. It's a reminder of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed. In the context of what we said today, it is a reminder that our world has purpose. Everything happens for a reason. You are here this morning for a reason. Maybe you need to be reminded that your life matters. Your life is so filled with purpose that Jesus went to the cross to purchase your life for God. He bought you. If you're a Christian this morning, he bought you for a reason. And maybe things feel out of control, Maybe you, you don't know. Maybe you feel like the, the chaos monsters are closing in at work, at home, at school, just in the swirl that's your heart and mind. Maybe for some of you, you, you find it comforting to believe that all of this is just a random mistake. There's no purpose in life. Nothing matters. I've been in that place where it just feels good to go like, you know, maybe this is all meaningless. The truth is, it's not. The plan of God is marching forward, recreating the world in the image of Christ. And you and I are meant to be part of it. And so we celebrate communion every week as our pledge of allegiance to Jesus Christ. To take the body of Jesus represented in the bread into you to drink the blood because Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, lives inside of us. And we live because he chose to die on our behalf. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.